Welcome to our special bonus episode of Anthropology, where a drunken anthropologist tries to teach us shit. Also, this is recorded in July, so please excuse any explosions that you may hear in the background. Oh, uh, I mean, shit is actually a part of anthropology. To teach us about coprolite. Gross. <laughs> That's archaeology. Please, know your apologies. <laughs> We're calling this one anthropology because I'm going to apologize a lot for probably getting stuff wrong because I have no idea what the fuck I'm saying when I'm drunk. And please don't That's mind. a great way to start off a podcast. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Have you listened to Drunk History? Okay, so to get this ball rolling, let me introduce a little bit about what anthropology is. Anthropology is, in a nutshell, the science of studying human beings being human beings. What does that mean? Well, we go in, we observe people being human, we ask them questions, and we try to formulate theories about humanity and why we do what we do and how we do what we do. So it's actually a really cool field. A lot of people think that all it is is writing about other cultures and that's another, that is a part of it. But for the sake of this, I will not be referring to culture a lot of the time. I'll be referring to society. And it's nothing like the show Bones. It is nothing like Bones. Please, for the love of God, if you watch that show and decide you want to go into anthropology, it's not going to be like that. It's just not. David Boreanaz is not going to fall in love with you. I thought Bones was archaeology. No, Bones is a forensic anthropologist. She's just a really bad forensic anthropologist. So, on that note, I'm going to explain a couple of terms before we get started, and then we'll get started. Two things to keep in mind. We are very dedicated to avoiding ethnocentrism and paying close attention to cultural relativism. And what that means is ethnocentrism is where you can compare another culture or society to your own as your own being the basis for what is right, the right way to live, the right way to be a society. And you kind of either look down your nose on it or you make a harsh judgment about the other person or society based on the fact that they're different from you. So we try not to do that. We try not to do that. Cultural relativism, on the other hand, is understanding a concept or idea from the viewpoint of that society or culture. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it. As an anthropologist, there are a lot of practices I don't agree with as being healthy or safe or whatever the case may be, but it isn't my job to write documents saying this is bad. It is my job to say this is why people do this. This is the meaning. This is the understanding. In my particular writing, I write from what is known as an ontological perspective. A lot of people confuse this idea of worldview, and it's not worldview. Ontology is more like we all live in the same realm, but on different planes of existence. So it's like we each have our own world, and they're all just connected. Now that I've gotten kind of woo-woo, tonight we're going to talk about... I'm kind of woo-woo tonight. Yeah, we're all pretty woo-woo. It's a drunken anthropology. So with that, we are going to talk a little bit tonight about eating, the anthropology of food, and we're going to dive a bit into fasting and why that's important to some cultures or societies. A lot, you'll hear a lot of people be like, I love ethnic food. I love... I hate that term. I know, I'm saying right now, as a chef who makes food for a living, I hate when people tell me they like ethnic food. Oh, I, you have no idea. I actually wrote an entire paper 
beating the hell out of this idea of ethnic food and authentic food and why we need to just toss those phrases out the window. Well, a lot of people just do not realize that really what you, you might go to a restaurant and you're like, we are authentic Mexican. That doesn't mean anything anymore. No. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. I mean, there's definitely food that is very specific to different parts of the world and cultures and even religions. Mm Mm-hmm. But actually getting that term authentic or ethnic food, it's just, it's not true anymore. Let's just put it this way. Literally everything you eat is ethnic because we are, we are all in different ethnic groups. Everyone. Every single person. If you have freaking fried chicken from some down-home southern restaurant, that's ethnic that's, food. If you are cooking mac and cheese in your kitchen, that is ethnic food. Everything is ethnic. We are all part of different ethnic groups. Ethnic does not mean what a lot of white people make it mean, which is brown people. Brown people food or non-American exotic food. Ex- even that what name to them exotic, is exotic. Yeah, what to them is exotic. Is extremely problematic. So yeah, yeah. that's that's something that gets me really heated up. But uh, we people tend to think that that's what it means to have something be cultural or ethnic, is that it's not white Eurocentric or white American. Yeah. And that's not correct. <laughs> so Anthropology of food is important because food is so much more than just food. We it, just the things we eat to stay healthy. Food is ritual. Food is life. It's food lifestyle. is it's it's lifestyle. Life. Right. It's, it's social life. It's status symbol. It's something that represents something to the person eating it. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that oh, we eat food that's easy to get based on where we live that's why these people eat this and these people that's not true that doesn't work that doesn't happen anymore it's so easy to get any food nowadays from anywhere and not just that but if you think about things like there are a lot of pigs in the middle east they could eat them but they don't because it's against their religion Mm -hmm. there are so many animals in the united states we could eat awful at every meal and it would be really cheap but we don't because our society dictates that's not correct food to eat here. Well, and that was one thing that, like, I know Michael wasn't raised this way, but you and I were raised by our parents. We were definitely exposed to many different types of food from many different places in the world. And for us, it was, we didn't just eat it to try food that was quote unquote weird to us. Our parents very much believed that if you want to learn about a people about a culture, one of the best ways is through their food, not only because of what they eat, but the ways they eat it, when mm-hmm. they eat it, yep. how they eat it, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's much less about the food itself and what that food is. So if you say something like, I'm really into Thai culture, I go to Thai drift all the time for dinner. <laughs> like, no, no, that's you're not really invested in the culture. You just like the taste of the food. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But that food means something to Thai people. And that's where the, that culture thing comes in. So as one author put it, Robin Fox, she says, instead of you are what you eat, you eat what you are. And she points out Margaret Mead, when she was writing on her observations in New Guinea, said, your own mother, your own sister, your own pigs, your own yams, which you have pulled up, you may not eat. So that right there gives us a little bit of an insight to what this means. In their culture, their society, 
what you grow, what you raise, you do not consume. And yes, this goes hand in hand with incest taboos. Amanda, you were mentioning a minute ago about abstaining from sex and food and some mm-hmm. of the stuff I had you read. And and I told you we'd get a little bit into why that is. They usually they seem to go hand in hand a lot. Right. When you abstain uh-huh. from food, you abstain from sex. Right. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. And food is so much more. Like I said, it's social status. It's a symbol of us being human. We are the only animals on earth who cook. So it's a symbol of our humanness altogether. The timing of eating can be a big deal. It shows what class you're in. Knowing how to eat properly in any given society shows people you're an outsider, right? So all these things around food and involving food that don't actually have directly to do with the food itself, it's all over. It's kind of a funny story. A good example of that was when I was in high school, I did a trip to China where I lived there for a couple of months. And we had grown up learning how to use chopsticks. Mm -hmm. And the first two or three times I ate when I was in China, I was getting really dirty looks. And I didn't know why, because I was like, hey, I'm one of the only white people here who know how to use chopsticks. I was 15. I was a little stupid. (laughs) And then I realized it's because I would hold my chopsticks in the way that is common in Japan. I would hold my chopsticks up very high Mm -hmm. because it was easier for me. Whereas they hold their chopsticks a lot lower into the middle of them. And it was considered disrespectful that I was eating with my hands in the wrong position on my chopsticks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something as simple as eating sushi with chopsticks in Japan. Yeah. And you don't think about that. Shows you're an outsider. Right. A lot of people don't think about that kind of thing. Right. Anthropologists do. (laughs) Wouldn't also preparing and making food do the same thing? I'm thinking specifically more like barbecue how different regions of the U.S. prepare barbecue the quote-unquote correct way. Oh, how there's like a Texas barbecue and a Georgia Memphis barbecue in South yeah. Carolina. And they're yeah, all, absolutely. they're all, no, this is the correct way you do barbecue. And they have their own rules. And it's almost like it's highly ritualized, too. Oh, yeah. So let's talk a minute about that, about eating and ritual. So... There's an this entry point with food for understanding humans, and ritual is definitely a big part of that because we study how people connect food to ritual, to symbolism, to belief systems, and our food is a comment. As one author put it, it's a comment on the sacred and to reenact venerated stories. So it's a connection to ancestors. It's a connection to our histories. It's a connection to who we are as a society. The, the case I was thinking of, was so in India there the preparation of food and the serving of food is a really big deal and it shows very clearly family connections so women prepare the food and it's a kitchen made up of the mother and her daughters-in-law and her daughters okay and when they go to serve the food it goes in rank of how important people are And this is something that dates back thousands of years. One story I read talked about this this girl pushing back against this, and she didn't like her mother-in-law, and so she would not serve her mother-in-law the good, tasty pieces before she served them to herself. And it was a really big deal. It caused a really big load of friction. That is a 
ritual is kind of a word that's difficult to really pin down and define. And in fact, in archaeology, they're kind of doing away with that word altogether. Usually when I think of stuff but, like that, I, I don't associate the word ritual. To me, it's more like tradition. Right, but tradition is a ritual. Yeah, but it's like, yeah. it, it, just the idea that it goes back in like history of their people, you know, where they're from. And this is the way it's been for so long. It's like, it's tradition. That's it's a tradition. It's done. And it's, it's modeled through a ritual. Yeah. Does that make more sense? Okay. Let's talk for a minute going back to this idea of sex and food. Food and the act of sex both trigger parts of the brain, the same part of the brain. They're physically linked in the limbic system, which controls emotion. Okay. So the part that makes you go, oh yeah. Exactly. You know, we see all these funny things about, oh, I mean, sex is great and all, but have you ever had a death by chocolate cake? Things like that. I've had steak better than sex. <laughs> Sorry, mom. So you don't have to apologize to her. You need to apologize <laughs> to the men not giving you the good sex. But no, they need to apologize to me. But that brings us to this idea of the, the women we're going to talk about who are famous for their fasting. So, Mike, tell us just very, very briefly who our first person is, our Lidwina. So we're talking about Lidwina who was in the town of Scheisdem in the Netherlands. I don't know why you keep giving me names to slaughter. Because Especially because it's, it's like, he just can't do names it's at funny. all. She died in 1433 at the age of 53. Tell us why she's relevant. So Ludwina is famous because she went on a lifelong fast. She took to her bed. She said... I refused to get married. This was a time where marriages were arranged. And when she found out that she was going to get married, she suddenly became ill. <laughs> suddenly became ill. I know. Totally, Giant. totally understandable. <laughs> Giant letters there. Yeah. Prayed. She actually, when she found out she was going to get married, she prayed for a deformity because she did not want to be married. Damn, that's like really not wanting to be married. Right, and it's it said it's because she wanted to stay so pure that she didn't want to have sex even in a marriage bed. But I think that it's more along the lines of she just simply didn't want to be forced into a marriage. Mm-hmm. And this right? And this was a way to kind of get out of that. So when she went to her sick bed after lots of praying and begging to be deformed. Whatever happened, she ended up there and she never got out of bed again. She never was well again. And there's not really anything that tells us why that is, just that she stayed in bed for the rest of her life. Somewhere along the way, she started to refuse to eat. And, well, I shouldn't say she never got out of bed again. She was never well again. She started to refuse to eat, and then she went ice skating one day and while she was ice skating i know while she was ice skating she received some sort of an injury went back to her sick bed and that's when she never left the bed again she weaned herself off food altogether in a couple of years after that and she became famous for this people would flock to her home we've talked about saintly relics and things like that She became basically a living relic. People would come and be blessed by her. People would come and just touch her. People would come and just sit there and watch her. That's not creepy. Not at all. 
one of the things she did while she was in her sickbed is she would eat the holy wafer of communion and she would drink, but that was it. And she somehow lived for ne nearly 40 years as a result of this. There was another woman named Alexandrina. That's who I read about. Yes. And do you want to tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. So she was born in 1904 in Portugal. She was kind of like born and raised there, never left her little village of Balasar. Yeah, it's a very small village. Um, but when she was a young girl, I think I said when she was about 14 years old, she was trying to run away from a group of men with a couple of other young women, and she jumped out of a window to try and get away from them. She was afraid of being raped. And she got a severe injury that slowly paralyzed her from the waist down. So let's pause for a second here. She was afraid of being raped. That is true. She was afraid of being raped. But not for the same reason most of us are afraid of it. She wasn't afraid of the so much of the pain and the terror and the violence. It was the unholiness. It was the unholiness yeah. of it. She would. This is an age, and this is actually still true in parts of the world today, including the parts of the United States, where they really believed that dying was better than being raped because you were no longer pure. Pure. So she she got away, but she had this injury and she slowly started to become paralyzed afterwards. So she was left in her bed for the rest of her life. But for the last 13 years of her life, she did the same thing as well, where she weaned herself off food and the only thing she would eat was the white wafers from communion. Right. So that's the only thing that she ate for 13 years. She wasn't the only young woman at the time who did this but she was kind of the most famous for it yeah because she did it for a long time she did it for a really long time they were her and the other young women at the time who would do this were referred to as non-eaters and originally the catholic church really tried to not support her yeah um they were they kind of she went through a lot of things she showed signs of things like stigmata and other such things which represent the crucifixion of Christ. And for a while, they really tried to make it off as if she was doing it for attention. She wasn't actually living off of it. Um, they sent spies to watch and see if she had foods yeah. hiding under the bed that she would sneak in between visitors coming to see her and things like that. But they never found any evidence that she wasn't eating anything other than these wafers. And she ended up starting to get quite a large group of followers mm -hmm. who believed and she eventually was referred to as a saint but for a very long time the the church did not want to recognize her as such but she did this until she died in 1954 she was 51 years old when she died yep a lot of the other things that she talked about and was, was the same thing we were talking about before was the sexual purity along with it she never married she stayed sexually pure her entire life you know it was this idea that if she didn't eat and she and the really important thing is the only thing she ate was the holy communion because she preached that it was a way to bring her closer to god that right the only thing she partook of was the holy communion and that it was a level of holiness that she was able to reach that regular folk weren't able to wasn't this still during the time where they believed the communion was became the literal body and blood of Christ. Oh, some, transfiguration. They still believe Catholic, Catholic, still church, yeah. yeah, Catholic Church still believes that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay so let's uh, talk a little bit about fasting in religion. There are many religions where fasting is a part of it, and it's done differently in every single one. Even with, in the umbrella of Christianity, there are so many different ways 
people fast, but the reasons for fasting vary somewhat from from one religion to the next. So, for example, in Islam, they have their Ramadan. That is an entire the ninth month of the Islam calendar. They go the entire month not eating till sundown and not eating again once the sun starts coming up. So they go basically all day and all night, all evening, without any food. There are multiple reasons for their fasting. It teaches sincere love. That's the most important and primary reason. A person who is willing to fast for Allah is then able to better understand what love is, and in so doing it teaches a person to live more holy, with a W, not with an H. It also teaches hope. A fasting person is hopeful that Allah will see them and see their sacrifice on his behalf. It teaches the virtuosity of utter devotion and obedience to Allah, and fasting Muslims can therefore become closer to Allah because the fasting person is adhering to Allah's will. It builds a sound conscience. You are not always in public while you are fasting. If you can continue your fast even when you are private, then it is helping you show that you are able to defeat temptation and it helps your conscience. It also helps teach compassion and patience as the fasting kind of reminds you of those who cannot eat for whatever reason, those who go without, etc. So those are the, the main reasons why people fast in Islam. Christianity, on the other hand, doesn't really have a singular definition of fasting, and there is even a disagreement about when, how, and why Christians should fast. There are mentions of fasting in the Bible. Overall, it's seen as a way to grow closer to God and to feel the reverence that comes with knowing Jesus Christ was a man on earth and he himself fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So it kind of is that exemplary moment of if God can do it and if I want to be as holy as he is someday, then I'm going to follow his example, which is kind of the tenet of Christianity anyways, trying to be like Jesus. But just about every single form and branch of Christianity has their own version of fasting and right. the exact way they do it and all uh-huh. that. Yep. So, for example, in Catholicism, they have Lent. Lent itself is a month-long fast, but it's not, it's not like Ramadan where you go endless hours each day without any food or anything like that, and they don't go without any food for 40 days and 40 nights the way Jesus did. Instead, during Lent, you give up one thing that's considered to be gluttonous or indulgent. So some people give up Diet Coke, some people give up smoking, some people give up sex, some people give up McDonald's, whatever the case may be, that is their version of fasting. Yeah, some people even give up things that aren't necessarily unhealthy things in the eye, it's just something that they have a problem with, that they can't stop Exactly. In Mormonism, fasting is something that is done once a month on the first Sunday of each month, and it is supposed to actually be more of a charitable act. The money that you're saving from fasting is supposed to go into a fund they call the fast offerings. Fast offerings help poor people who can't afford their rent, who can't afford their food, things like that. That's what that source is mainly for. And it is, again, to grow closer to God. It's supposed to be a sacrifice. He sacrificed for them, therefore they will sacrifice for him kind of thing. Mormons also will fast for special occasions, like my son is in the hospital, I'm asking for all my friends and family to please fast and pray with me. And that's another thing that goes hand in hand with fasting in these religions is praying. And I would argue from a psychological perspective that the praying kind of 
eases your mind of the fact you're hungry. <laughs> and also it reinforces the idea of I'm doing this for a holy purpose. Well, and I think it's also just looking at different religions and how I would say important it is or how serious it is. Cause it's like, we were, we were raised Mormon. Neither of us are practicing anymore, but it wasn't, it was something that they did, but it wasn't really pushed. It wasn't something that you felt like you had to do. Mm-hmm. It was highly suggested. And I think it's kind of interesting if you look at something like that, where there were some past Sundays growing up, we didn't do it mm-hmm. um, for certain reasons here or there. Sometimes we just forgot, but in other religions or peoples who do fasting, it can be extremely serious like Ramadan and Islam. Right. And just seeing that not only can it vary the way you do it, but the seriousness of it mm-hmm. varies from religion to religion. There is a great article out there and I wish I had thought to bring it to the literal table tonight about people who fast on behalf of other people. Usually in this article, it's like moms fasting on behalf of their sons because the sons don't really fast anymore. And this is in, this is in I believe, Ethiopia. And the sons feel a lot of the, the people interviewed feel some guilt. but And then they're like, but it's okay because my mom fasts on my behalf. And then the moms will get interviewed and they're like, well, I know my son doesn't really fast the way he should. So I'm fasting for him. And I'm hoping that it will still save him kind of thing. Well, and I've heard of that kind of thing in a couple of Christian religions, too. I've known These people, are, they are Christians. Well, yeah, I was yeah. Gonna, I, I've, I've known people who also will fast for someone who's extremely sick, who can't fast themselves mm-hmm. because they're so sick, it would be harmful to them. Yeah. And doing that kind of substitute fast in that way as well. And most people these days are smart enough to know that, for example, I as a diabetic wouldn't have fasted anyway, even if I was a practicing Mormon. Pregnant women are encouraged to not fast. And a lot of times people in that case will substitute things like, I'm just going to eat really plain food. Or I'm just going to eat really, really healthy food. Yeah. Yeah. So how does this tie into sex? Let's talk about that. Well, these women were both fasting and that does really serious things to change your bodies. When you go without food for a really long time, especially as a woman, your hormones get out of sync and as young as these two women were when they started fasting, they would not have fully developed. They would not have had bosoms. They most likely would not have been able to have full periods. And it is highly unlikely once they got into really emaciated status that they could have ever even gotten pregnant. So in avoiding food, it's not just a matter of being pure of body. It's a matter of, I'm not even attractive now. I'm not even worthy of being married, nobody's going to want to impregnate me. I'm not going to be able to have children. And so I think it's also a huge mechanism of control. We know that Lidwina did not want to get married. This is a really good way to avoid that. And the taboos, as Margaret Mead talked about, of sex and of food so often are parallel to each other. So I'm not going to eat pork and I'm not going to have sex with an unmarried woman may not sound like it's in the same realm, but they both equal the same thing. They both equal purity of body. Now I'm getting pretty drunk. Do you have any questions? Next time I'm going to have you Did you know that the term break fit breakfast is because you're breaking your fast? I did yes. know that. Fun trivia. I bet everyone listening knew that, but it makes me feel smart. So I think that about wraps it up. It's not really extensive, but if you have any questions to ask the drunken anthropologist, by all means, email us 
monarchsandmalarkey at gmail.com and I will do my best to answer them. Well, and then, you know, we'd love to hear if you practice any form of fasting due to your religion and, and the same type of thing that we didn't talk about or that you want to share your story. We'd love to hear more sides of it, more ways that people practice this and where you come from with it. Absolutely, yeah. And if you have any ideas for further topics for this segment, go ahead and let us know. And with that, I'm going to close with a quote because studying food and anthropology has not actually always been a thing. But as Professor Joseph Epstein said, like clear back in the 70s, Ten years ago, I should have said that any fuss about food was too great, but I grow older and food has become more important to me. Judging from the space given to it in the media, the great number of cookbooks and restaurant guides published annually, the conversations of friends, it is very nearly topic number one. Restaurants today are talked about with the kind of excitement that ten years ago was expended on movies. Kitchen technology, blenders, grinders, vegetable steamers, microwave ovens, and the rest arouses something akin to the interest once reserved for cars. The time may be exactly right to hit the bestseller lists with a killer who disposes of his victims in a cuisine art. You know what? I'm just going to say, even though that was a while ago, that still holds true. It very much holds true today. You know, how often do you still see shit all the time for Instapots and new different weird gadgets in the kitchen and all that kind of thing? Or how millennials are abandoning chain restaurants. Oh no, how dare we You know what, I'm folks. I'm going to be posting on all our so- social media a poll to ask you if you would like a, a bonus episode of Anthropology about the anthropology of restaurants, because that's actually a thing. Yep, it totally is a thing. You would be absolutely surprised that, the culture of restaurants. that there is yep. a complete culture, not only in owning a restaurant and that side of it, but working but inside of restaurants. Working in restaurants and the culture of going to restaurants. Yeah. So if you want to hear about that, be sure to check out our poll on all the different social meds. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Catch you on the flip side, peasants. Across the land, we are moving, moving. This ain't no phase, the change these bodies make in the way they are. Facing forward, shoulder to the stone, talent of moving in takes one step, takes your voice, it takes your voice. Through the pavement We were born of burning hearts We are terrified
No hands but our hands will lead our children. All that will feed you is a fierce prayer, it's a fierce prayer. Saying, I am not hearing if you are not naming it. I am not stopping if you are not changing it. Here are my hands, let's see what they're making. In the morning, in the rise up, there's a bridge from all that's been in the dawning. The vines are pushing through the pavement. We were born of burning hearts. We are tearing off the rains from the ground up. We will build it from the clouds above. Sometimes our heart may start to bleed a bit I choose this life I'm gonna lead And I must give my hands to make it in the morning Thank you to the band Wild Light for use of their song From the Ground Up from the album The Tide Remixes.